Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Well, good evening, everyone. I'm Laura Coates, and this is CNN Tonight. And look, it's really happening all across this country. A Missouri bill that would ban critical race theory in kindergarten through 12th grade, even though it's actually not part of the grade school curriculum. Now, that same bill requiring a program to teach American patriotism. In Florida, Ron DeSantis blocking a new advanced placement course for high school students on African-American studies, saying that that course lacks educational value. Last year, he also signed a bill restricting how schools can actually talk about race with their students. Governors and legislators, mostly on the right, waging a kind of war on what they see and view as so-called woke curriculum. But others see as the, well, telling of truth and an unvarnished truth at that of our own American history. And then there's the war on woke, part two. This time, it's called the word police. In Arkansas, Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders is banning and has banned the word Latinx in all official state documents. And you may have heard that Stanford University's IT department created a list of so-called harmful language, including words and phrases like, you guys, killing two birds with one stone, even the word American. Tonight, we're going to dig into all the questions over which words you can use, which words you can't, and who ought to decide. Plus, it's it's a win-or-go-home scenario for the Buffalo Bills this very weekend. The Bills are facing the Cincinnati Bengals in a rematch this Sunday for the two-term, two teams, after the last game was halted when DeMar Hamlin collapsed on the field during Monday Night Football. I'll talk to Buffalo's own mayor about what a win would mean for a city that suffered one tragedy after another over the last year. Lots to talk about tonight. I want to begin with the so-called war on woke nationwide. Joining me now, Nina Turner, co-chair of Bernie Sanders' 2020 presidential campaign. Scott Jennings, former special assistant to President George W. Bush, and CNN senior political analyst John Avalon. Good to have all of you here tonight, especially on this Friday after a week of what we're seeing, the culmination of so many different instances about ways to attack the so-called wokeism. Let me begin with you here, Nina, because Missouri wants to ban critical race theory in schools, even though this is an important part, they want to ban it in schools and teachers say it's actually not taught in grade schools. So I wonder, why do you think it is that governors and legislators are moving in this way and pushing back against what they are calling a woke curriculum? Well, it's a dog whistle because it's not taught in K through 12 educational classrooms. We know that critical race theory is primarily taught in law school. 
and it is a way to look at the con the legal constructs of this country that race is a social construct and that social construct is not just about individual biases or prejudices that the whole notion of racism is weaved into that and we know that professor Kimberly Crenshaw and some others came up with that and primarily taught in law school so they they it's a dog whistle and they are talking to it just boggles my mind it seems like conservatives always want to make a false equivalency and their goal really is they need to come on and tell the truth their goal is to erase or diminish the history of black people and other marginalized populations instead we should be educating enlightening people empower people let's talk about the structural imbalances in this country and then do something about them but to say that you don't want these types of curriculum taught in school tells me that you don't want our children to know the truth about America's history the good the bad and the ugly and it is a, an affront to the black community in particular and other marginalized communities in general. Scott, I want to bring you in here because you and I um, really bonded in some respects over distance learning during the pandemic and how much more we became involved <laughs> in our kids' curriculum as all parents did really and thought, oh, now I'm really, really paying attention, especially at the grade school level. It's true, it's not taught at the grade school level, but what Nina is talking about in particular and also with the topics from the AP course, for example, just a little bit, intersectionality and activism is part of it. Black queer studies was part of it, movement for black lives, black feminist literary thought, the reparations movement, black study and black struggle in the 21st century. These are some of the topics from the AP course in African-American studies that Governor Tennis does not want to be taught in the schools. Do you agree with Nina in the sense that this is um, a dog whistle and an attempt to erase or whitewash, whitewash history? No, I don't agree. I thought it was interesting that Nina uh, started her answer by saying, well, this, no one's even talking about this. And then she ended her answer by saying, we should be talking about it. We should be teaching it. Everyone should learn it in school. And so that's where they're headed. Look, I think this is very simple. There are a lot of parents out there who don't want their children taught that because they are white, that they are inherently evil, that they've done something wrong, that they have, uh, you know, uh, oppressed anyone. That's the, that's the issue. That's what parents believe has been happening in some of these classes. It's, you know, that's not law school theories. It's just the idea that you would teach one group of children that they are inherently bad or that our country and the way it was founded and by uh, the people that founded it is inherently rotten at its core. That's what uh, conservative parents are worried about. That's the core of these uh, uh, legislative activities in these states. And, uh, and I think that's what DeSantis is getting at. That's what they're getting at in Missouri and, and a whole bunch of states out there. You know, there is something oh, to be up, said. Scott. I, I want to hold. I, I want to play. I, I want you to respond, Nina. But I do want to just insert into the conversation in reaction to what you said. I had a chance to speak, Secretary of Education Miguel Cardona, today on my radio program, and I actually asked him about his concerns about that perception that you just listed—the idea of um, this assumption or belief that in teaching certain historical elements that you are attacking and alienating specific people. I asked him what he thought, and did he have concerns about that perception? Listen to it. It concerns me because I think um, some students are being made uh, to feel uncomfortable walking into their own school, right, uh, with some of the policies that were passed last year, in particular LGBTQ students. But I also worry about how uh, some folks, they don't like true history being taught and almost minimize the experience of uh, black and brown uh, students in their in their school by limiting what they're able to access. That's a problem. And I, and I hope uh, our parents are, are paying attention and our students are paying attention. You know, when you have federal, uh, a government over state government overreach, 
to the point where you're not even able to pick courses that you want to take, that, that's very concerning to me. I mean, on that point, John, I want to bring you back in here as well, Nina, in just a moment. On that point, John, an AP course, for example, this is not something, you know, this is something you can elect to take, or you can have the opportunity to do so. And his comment was about the idea of having, he called overreach by the government, dictating the terms of what the curriculum ought to be. What's the issue in your mind? Well, I, I think, first of all, what DeSantis is doing with this AP history course is about identifying a political tactic they think is a winner for the Republican base in particular, uh, this war on woke. I think it shows that a lot of the, the conversations around uh, free speech really fall apart when it's pushing their own ideological agenda. I, I think that um, a full and fair understanding of U.S. history needs to be taught. Um, that's something we should be unflinching about, the good, the bad, and the ugly. But I think what a lot of folks uh, and white parents in particular are, are concerned about is this idea uh, that, that it's a teaching of America as a fundamentally flawed you know, country, rotten at its core, uh, and, 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 and that a stigmatization along the lines of race to kids in grade school. I would also say that the group more in common did a study called Defusing the History Wars just last month, and it showed that there's a perception gap. That, that Democrats are not as far left on, on issues as the right wing would have you believe, and that Republicans are not as hostile to a, a balanced teaching of American history as some on the left would have you to believe. You know, Nina, I want to bring you back on that because the idea of belief is harkening back in that conversation of what people believe is happening and the idea of almost building off of the assumptions of what it actually means. And I would I suggest here there's also the notion of in, as the counter argument, they want to have a bill to, in lieu of critical race theory, which is not being taught in schools, um, in grade schools, they want to have teacher training on patriotism instead, as if it's really an either or scenario. What's your reaction? And, and it's, it's not an either or. So let me get back with Scott, since he want to go there. For years, for decades, for generations in this country, black children have had to carry inferiority on their backs, in their minds, in their hearts. This country, going back to what John said, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Well, let me tell you a little bit about the bad and the ugly. Chattel slavery was bad and ugly. And to be able to teach African-American history in a holistic way, which is America's history, this country has some good, it has some bad, and it has some ugly. And anybody that would fix their mouth, to quote my grandmother, to say that chattel slavery was okay, that the enslavement of black people was okay, that, that having separate but unequal was okay, then there is something wrong with them. Number two, Scott, Critical race theory is taught in law school. It is not taught in K through 12. However, the point that I was making was about the teaching of African-American history itself, which is American history. And to teach that history, you have to teach the whole of it. You can't just teach one part of it. So it's not about making white children feel inferior. This is about teaching history in the broadest way so that people can gain a deeper understanding. And hopefully through that understanding, things can change. I don't see Governor DeSantis doing away with AP European history or AP world history. I wonder why that is. Governor DeSantis needs to focus on governing the state and stay out of education and let the educators educate. 
So, Scott, if you and other white people got a problem with the whole of American history being taught, then you're the ones that have the problem. This ain't about making anybody feel in fear, but Brown v. Board, Board of Education was just that, about how generations of black children have been made to feel inferior in these United States of America. And it Scott, was let, founded on racism and bigotry. Let's get Scott bigotry. back in here. Let's get Scott back here, and I want you to respond. What is your reaction, Scott? Yeah, well, Nina, you ought to be very happy with Governor DeSantis because not only is African-American history under Florida law required to be taught to school children, it has actually been expanded during his governorship. This particular class they don't like because of some of the curriculum points they think is in conflict with Florida law, but it is an absolute state requirement in Florida that they teach African-American history, and it's gotten uh, more expansive since he came in. So you sound upset with me, but the fact the way is, he uh, wants Governor to talk, DeSantis, though, Scott, right? I mean, you, you say, you say, the way he wants you to say, talk. no, he's not writing the, the party curriculum. Of free he's not writing speech. the curriculum. Hold on, Nina, excuse me, excuse me, yes, no one can, no, wait, no one, He's not writing the curriculum. Excuse me, I'm just telling you the facts. Hello, Television 101, no one can hear you when you talk over each other. So let's just go back to, I want to hear your response, Scott, and I'll allow you to speak. Go ahead. Yeah, I'm, I'm just, I'll just wrap up and say, you know, the governor of the state is not writing the curriculum. I'm just telling you the facts. School children learn African-American history in Florida, and it's gotten more expansive on his watch. So you say you want it taught. It is being taught. I think you're upset about this class, but holistically speaking, they're getting a really good education in Florida about African-American history in the United States. John, no, I'm not upset you. about this class, Scott. I'm, I'm, a, I'm upset with the fact that you said that white children are somehow going to feel inferior if all of African-American history is taught. So I wanted to have this conversation with you about inferiority and who has that, been made that's to feel, absolutely, be, that's uh, a, that, feel inferior that, that's, in the United States of America. That, that is absolutely 100% that is absolutely 100% not what I said. I said that parents are concerned Let's roll the tape, baby. that children you did are walking into classrooms. We can roll the tape. That, no, Excuse I didn't say that. Nina, no, no, I need, I didn't. Nina, I said, I'd like it. Hold I on. I did not. Wait, I'm sorry. It's just not true. Okay, I, I'm th this beautiful iridescent pink top I have is a showstopper for a reason. So let me go ahead and stop the show in a moment, okay? <laughs> what I'm trying to express to you all in this moment is I want to hear from all of you. I want to understand your positions. It's the whole point of the conversation. I understand that things can get very heated in some moments, but people need to be informed and learn and be able to appreciate the nuances of your arguments and positions. None of that can happen if we talk over each other. We're not having the benefit of a beautiful round table to have the conversation. We are going to come back and continue on other points. John, you cannot hide in the right corner of the screen. I'm going to bring you right back into this as well because your tie matches my outfit. And Nina and Scott and John, we're going to come right back. So everyone stick around. We're going to go back to the basics and come have some good points bring out today on that. We're also going to come back to this notion of the so-called word police and how that makes people feel more divided than perhaps we really are. We're talking about a lot when we come back, so lean in with me. We're back now with Nina Turner, Scott Jennings, and John Avalon, who also has an opinion piece on CNN.com, saying the word police are doing more harm than good. We're going to come back to that point in just a moment, but I do want Scott to have a chance to respond. I know that you had a statement you wanted to make as well. Yeah, I just wanted to respond to Nina. I, I absolutely, <laughs> under no circumstances, said that children 
should be taught that slavery didn't happen or that it was somehow good or, or whatever it is you attributed to me. In fact, I don't think there's a school in America that isn't teaching about the United States of America, how it's founded, what happened, the wars we fought, how we atoned for it, the progress we've made. I think that's being taught in probably every school in America where parents really have an issue and you can talk to a lot of parents about it, is if teachers are telling one group of students, this is somehow your fault, you're, you're somehow inferior, or you're somehow bad, or you somehow caused harm or pain to this other child. These are very sensitive topics, and to be talking to students at an extremely young age about that, I mean, I think it sounds like college debates to me, but to be talking to, to school-age kids about that, that's what has parents concerned, and it's why you see these legislators uh, dealing with it at, at the state level. You know, interestingly enough, and I, um, John, I want to bring you in here as well, and Nina, interestingly enough, you know, I don't know of a lesson that actually does this, that precise mo notion where they are telling and singling, singling out students to say, you are the problem, you are bad. I mean, there's a Taylor Swift song of, hi, I'm the problem, it's me. They might be citing that lyric, but that's not what's happening in many, court, in many classrooms. But John, on this, on this point, why is this perception not held when we learn, say, about um, the suffrage movement and women voting. I, I rarely hear an argument that someone makes about men collectively as a gender feeling as though they're alienated and targeted when we talk about women's rights in this country. Why do you think the element of race, John, inserts a very different dynamic and nuance that has conversations like this? Well, Laura, that's because the original sin of slavery uh, is, is a stain that spreads through American history. And you can't understand American history or American political history without dealing with race. It's a fundamental fault line. And it's not just Brown v. Board. I mean, up until, you know, the mid-60s, there were, you know, a lot of schools that, that whitewashed uh, slavery uh, and, and, and didn't want to deal with the civil rights movement. Now we've got a, a more integrated understanding of American history being taught some folks that makes folks feel uncomfortable. Some folks on the left would reduce it to identity politics tropes that, um, you know, take it too far. And, and by the way, I do think we should be teaching civics education. And I don't think there's anything remotely right wing about that. We need to return to liberal values and, and, and a sense of shared civics. Um, but it's when the extremes hijack these debates and run roughshod over any liberal uh, liberal values or, or, or allegations of free speech that things start getting balkanized again. And you have to understand it in the context of American history. So when there is this, this, this intense pushback on the teaching of a more integrated view of American history, you've got to understand it in the context of American history. And that's why folks should be right to say, hold on, you're, you're, you're resurrecting some ugly old ghosts that we saw play out at different periods in American history. We need to understand those history in order to transcend it ultimately. You know, you have a piece on CNN.com to that to the point about the idea of, of whitewashing or even changing terminology. Um, and you say mm. the word police are doing more harm than good. And you actually point to Sarah Huckabee Sanders, the Arkansas governor, and she has banned the term Latinx in state docs, saying that she, does, she wants to ban what she calls culturally insensitive words. Um, I wonder what you make of that being one of her first actions, one, and how that fits into <sighs> the larger discussion about cultural sensitivity by terminology. So the, the column's about is the feedback loop between the far right and the far left and the way that the word police end up creating these politically driven prohibitions. And, and, and you know, Arkansas Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders, one of the first things she does is ban the term uh, Latinx. So look, first of all, uh, that, that term itself, uh, as, as Pew surveys and Gallup surveys have shown, is used by, used by like 3% of Hispanic and Latino Americans. Um, 
So which raises the question, why is that the first thing you're doing? And the answer is it, it's, it's, it's performative. It, it, it's designed to sort of own the libs and, and, and cultivate sort of conservative celebrity, not actually, you know, having necessarily to do with serving the people of her state. But on the very same day, as I point out in my column, University of Southern California, you know, School of Social Work announced it was banning the term field research out of fear that it could be seen as as racist or anti-immigrant. And just a few weeks before, Stanford University, in their internal memo by a tech department, had banned a number of words in an elimination of harmful language uh, memo they put out that would ban, as you mentioned earlier in the segment, the term American. Uh, or rather would suggest it should be used as U.S. citizens. And there's a predictable reaction to that. And the school backed away and said, not only are we not banning it, but actually the elimination of Harbaugh Langold initiative was itself eliminated. The issue is, is that this feedback loop between the far right and the far left makes us feel much more divided than we are. And we need to recommit to some basic liberal values of tolerance, inclusion, and free speech and get away from this censorous, uptight uh, attitude that has fellow Americans walking on eggshells around each other. Nina, what's your reaction to that? I mean, there's some false equivalencies here, but as far as Governor Huckabee is concerned, Arkansas is one of the poorest states, one of the worst states when it comes to childhood poverty rates. And Governor Huckabee needs to be worried about poverty in her state and let the English teachers worry about vocabulary and get to work doing the things that the people of that state elected her to do. Lastly, Laura, I just cannot sit here and allow Scott to get away with what he just said. Malcolm X, I clearly remember in reading the autobiography of Malcolm X when he talked about being in class and his white male teacher asked everybody in the classroom, Malcolm X is the only black person in that classroom, this ain't ancient history, asked them what they wanted to be when they grow up. And when he told his teacher he wanted to be a lawyer, his teacher told him to be realistic about being a N-word in America. So do not sit here and act like America has totally atoned because it has not totally atoned for its original sin. And why can't we just have that conversation? As far as the word police, I agree. A lot of these people have too much time on their hands worrying about that kind of stuff. That's not where it is. How do we help people live better and and richer, more enriched lives? That should be the major point here. Scott, you want to respond? And education is a vehicle for that. I'm Uh, sorry, I just wanted to get that. I I, I believe education is a vehicle for that. Understood. Scott? Yeah, I think on the the Latinx thing, I mean, (laughs) yeah, is is some of it performative? Sure, but it's it's a made-up word. I mean, you do have people in our society, sorry, you do have people in our society right now who are running around literally making up words and redefining words that have very common definitions. And as, as someone said, you know, we're walking on eggshells around each other. I totally agree with that. And so I saw Sarah's order uh, as pushing back on these people who are making up words and redefining words and trying to contort uh, the English language to, to pit us against each other. So I was glad she did it. I thought it was fine. And, uh, and frankly, the fact that only 3% of uh, Hispanics uh, use that term tells me that uh, it's a made-up word that's being made up for the purpose of division, not for the purpose of you know, being useful in American language. Well, this conversation made something very clear to me, and that is that the conversations we need to have are very urgent and need to be ongoing to better understand each other. And of course, with an eye towards what the conversation began about, about what we're educating our children and, you know, in the legacy of one David Crosby, who just passed away, teach our children well, everyone. Nice to talk to all of you this Friday evening. 
Oh, Take look care. at you. You're going to talk to me. No, no, that's it. Goodbye. Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, Lord, Lord. Yeah, I, I, I just, I, I wanted to, can I, can I just say one, one thing? I, I, after look, my I, I David Crosby reference, after my reference, I, I, I think these conversations are extremely valuable. And I just wanted to say something about my friend, Nina. She and I have been on television a thousand times together. We have had a lot of very difficult conversations. We've talked about a lot of sensitive issues. We've both talked about a lot of politicians who said a lot of stupid things and done a lot of uh, dumb things uh, with their offices. And I just wanted to say, I find our exchanges to be valuable. I know these things sound heated, but I think when you have Nina Turner and Scott and Laura and John and people like us that can have reasonable conversations, it's better for American civil discourse. I just wanted to say that about my friend and about your show. I think it's a valuable thing to do. Well, everyone nodded when you said friend. What a kumbaya moment. Thank you so much. I like it. <laughs> we'll talk again soon. Listen, everyone, it was a lawsuit that targeted Hillary Clinton and former top DOJ officials brought by Donald Trump and his attorneys, but a federal judge was having none of it. And now he's ordering nearly a million dollars in sanctions against the former president and one of his lawyers. We'll talk more about it next. Nearly $1 million in sanctions. That's what a federal judge is ordering former President Trump and one of his lawyers to pay. It's over a lawsuit they filed against Hillary Clinton, former top Justice Department officials, and several others, alleging that the nearly three dozen defendants conspired against Trump in the 2016 campaign. Judge Donald Middlebrook issuing a scathing rebuke of the case, writing, quote, This case should never have been brought. Its inadequacy as a legal claim was evident from the start. No reasonable lawyer would have filed it. Ripping some of Trump's claims, writing, quote, It was not that the complaint and amended complaint were inadequate in any respect. They were inadequate in nearly every respect. And pointing out Trump's habit of using the courts for his own purposes, writing, Mr. Trump is a prolific and sophisticated litigant who is repeatedly using the courts to seek revenge on political adversaries. He is the mastermind of strategic abuse of the judicial process, and he cannot be seen as a litigant blindly following the advice of a lawyer. He knew full well the impact of his actions. And as of tonight, Trump and his team have dropped another lawsuit they'd filed, that one against New York Attorney General Letitia James. For more on all of this, I want to bring in CNN legal analyst Elliot Williams and Donald Trump biographer Michael D'Antonio. Glad to see you both here. First of all, Elliot, this judge was not mincing any words in his um, review of this lawsuit. What was your reaction? Well, first off, you know, I clerked for Judge Middlebrooks um, uh, in a past life, maybe 20 uh, years ago. And so, you know, I've seen his opinions uh, over the years. This was a very remarkable opinion. And I think there's a lot of focus on sort of the the bombast and the, um, you know, Trump versus the law. This is actually a very meticulous legal opinion um, laying out the standard for when you sanction an attorney, what it takes, how they calculate the fees, and what the law says and what and, and also looking back at past conduct, um, you know, they point out the fact that the former president sued the Pulitzer board over the fact that the uh, Pulitzers were given to The New York Times, and The Washington Post in making a case that this was just a frivolous lawsuit. And now we should also note this nine hundred plus thousand dollars. It wasn't just a number pulled out of thin air. It's for attorneys fees and costs. And the judge walks through it again in great detail how you tabulate that one million dollars. 
dollars. So it's not. I, I think folks have in their head that this judge just got mad at Donald Trump and then uh, mm-hmm. threw a million dollar fine at him. And it's just it's far more complicated and legally supported than that. Michael, it almost seems he's talking about this, and you hear about it in the press, the idea, and you've written about the idea of um, sort of the Trump playbook, so to speak, the idea of some litigants essentially not being able to go against the best lawyers that money can possibly buy. What is your reaction to this? Well, I do think that the judge has noted one of the constant themes when you examine Donald Trump's tactics and methods. He sues people for a variety of reasons and rarely does it have anything to do with justice. He wants to punish people by draining their bank accounts. He wants to attract publicity and he wants to deflect the public's attention from his own misdeeds. So the very first lawsuit he ever filed was in 1973 when he had his pit bull Roy Cohn alleged that the Justice Department had acted as a Gestapo force in trying to get him to stop discriminating against minority applicants for apartments. I think the judge noted many cases where Trump has done similar things. I I think he could write his own biography of Donald Trump, given what I've seen in the uh, ruling. So he got it all right. Uh, He was one of the rare places where Trump met accountability, and this is something people ask about all the time. When will this man be held accountable? Well, here's one case where he has been held accountable. Elliot, is this telling about his approach that we've talked talk about more broadly and how he views lawyers or even the justice system when he was the head of the executive branch? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. You know, and when we talk about this idea of when will this person be held accountable, you ought to sort of treat every instance as unique. You know, the fact that one person suing Donald Trump or one jurisdiction is seeking to prosecute him, they all get sort of mixed together. And, you know, I think an opinion like this is very important in sort of, you know, in isolation in this case, what we've seen is how um, you can sort of lay out a case um, you know, based on the facts and law in one matter as opposed to pulling everything else in. So, you know, it, it was just it, it, I think it's just very powerfully written and well-reasoned and organized. Um, and I think that just should be noted. And it's true. The idea of conflation being a dangerous yeah. um, vehicle, especially people talk about Donald Trump. Everything seems to come together and they go, it is part of this. And this judge seemed to make very clear is about this case in this moment. Thank you so much, everyone. There are also big developments ahead in the case of four Idaho college students stabbed to deaths, death in their own home and beds. A report saying suspect Brian Koberger followed all three female victims on Instagram and repeatedly messaged one of them. The details are next. We have new details tonight about the suspect in the stabbing deaths of four Idaho college students. People Magazine reports suspect Brian Koberger followed the three female victims on Instagram. Joining me now to discuss CNN correspondent Veronica Miracle and CNN senior law enforcement and intelligence analyst John Miller. Glad to have you both here. Veronica, let me begin with you in the reporting from People that an Instagram um, account that authorities believe belonged to the suspect sent several messages to one of the victims. What do you know? 
Laura, apparently Brian Koberger repeatedly messaged one of those victims over and over again. They're citing a source, a People magazine rather, citing a source close to the investigation who apparently said that Brian Koberger basically said it was just him saying, hey, how are you? But he did it again and again. Uh, it is unclear, though, if she saw those messages because apparently, according to that source who talked to People magazine, that she did not respond. As you mentioned, uh, they also said that Brian Koberger followed all three of the female victims on Instagram, three out of the four victims. They're citing that source as well as their own review of the now deleted Instagram. It is important to note, Laura, however, uh, that Brian Koberger has not entered a plea yet. He will be in front of a judge in June when that judge will decide if there is enough evidence to go to trial. Laura? John, what does this tell you? I mean, the idea that there may have been this social media connection one way or otherwise, does this give you any insight on how law enforcement will look at this as to possibly motive or anything else? Well, it does, and it could give more. I mean, what it tells us is the logical thing, which is we've only really known the name Brian Kohlberger and the face that goes with it since December 28th. So that's given law enforcement a chance to go back through his social media, his computers, and they're still doing that. But the fact that he was following them on Instagram, the fact especially that he, if, if the People magazine story is accurate, that he direct messaged one of them, didn't get a reply, and then did it a number of other times, um, indicates that he was trying to reach out. If you take that in the offender characteristics of people who have been accused in such crimes before, um, if he's an incel um, subscriber that thinks that... Um, you know, women ignore him uh, if he is an injustice collector who magnifies every slight. The fact that, that he followed them online and didn't get an answer and messaged again and again and again could be the thing that led to his obsession, his anger, and what police charge. You make a really excellent point, John, especially about the idea of the lead time that investigators would have had by not disclosing their following or tracking of this particular suspect, likely an opportunity for him not to have or be tipped off on what they might know if they were trying to watch from a distance how he reacted, how he responded. Um, Veronica, the families involved here are learning things in piecemeal as the public really is. Are you getting a sense of how the community there is reacting to the details as they unfold? I think it's incredibly difficult for the community, and it has been since the very beginning. Of course, at the beginning of when all of this happened, there was very little information that came out from the police department. The community was scared. They had very few answers. I think once the arrest was made, then there was uh, a definite, I guess, sense of relief that they finally had some answers. And there was also an outpouring of support to the Moscow Police Department. In fact, some apologies, according to the chief of police, who told me that People were apologizing for criticizing the police department during the investigation for not releasing a lot of information. Uh, now looking back, uh, they say, you know, they, they trust the department, um, that they had to do what they had to do in order to get this investigation and bring this arrest out. And now I think people are just feeling really fatigued um, with all of this news, and it's just really painful and difficult as this small, tight-knit community really grieves the loss of four of their own. Laura? Really important. Veronica Miracle, John Miller, thank you so much, both of you. Well, the second week of the NFL playoffs is getting underway tomorrow, and it will no doubt be emotional, particularly in Buffalo, 
as the Bills take on the Bengals. Just three weeks since DeMar Hamlin went into cardiac arrest on the field. What this moment could mean for the city of Buffalo next. Well, this is a very exciting weekend for the people of Buffalo, New York, because on Sunday, their beloved Bills are hosting the Cincinnati Bengals in the NFL playoffs. Now, you'll recall that during the last Bills-Bengals matchup, that was just three weeks ago, safety DeMar Hamlin was seriously injured and collapsed on the field. Now, thankfully, he is on the road to recovery. And tomorrow, heading into the big game, a pep rally will be held outside of City Hall. So now's a perfect time to bring in Buffalo's Mayor Byron Brown. Mayor Brown, welcome to the show. I'm so glad to see you this evening. Good to be with you. You know, we all watched um, as it happened on that Monday night football game. And really, the nation stopped. The world was watching to see what happened. And they were all thinking about, obviously, Buffalo Bills star um, DeMar Hamlin and, of course, and your city more broadly. And I wonder, you know, where he is now in terms of his recovery. I understand that he has been discharged, thankfully, from the hospital, but has also been at the team facility nearly every single day. But he does have some challenges ahead. Do you know how he's doing? He's doing much better. His recovery has been remarkable. To me, it shows the power of prayer, people praying all across Buffalo, Cincinnati, across the nation, across the world. And to see him recover from a life-threatening injury on the field and be able to uh, come back to the Bills uh, facility and spend time with his teammates, be discharged from the hospital, uh, certainly has been very inspirational. I mean, really, when I think about where he is now. I just think about the word resilience and it is becoming synonymous really as people are thinking about Buffalo, thinking about the Buffalo Bills team and thinking about just the way the entire nation has seemed to come around and embrace. But it's been a very, really incredibly difficult year for the city. And I want to talk about the Bills in particular because this team really has seemed to bring the community together in a way that um, that intersection of sports and community and politics and all the things where we hope for escapism, but reality confronts us. Talk to me about how this Bills team really has been that symbol of resilience, but also a bridge. The Bills have been great on the field, but they're also great off the field. They're very visible in the community, players, coaches, the uh Ownership, uh, all very visible in the community, uh, doing things with children, giving to charities, attending special events. So uh, the Bills, uh, their toughness, uh, their resilience really exemplifies the people of Buffalo. Uh, Tough, resilient, strong, uh, always striving to, to, to do better. Uh, and uh, we are proud of the Bills. They're beloved in the city of Buffalo, and they are the perfect team, the perfect fit for the city of Buffalo. You know, the nation's eyes have been on Buffalo for more than one reason. And, of course, last May, there was the racially motivated shooting at the Topps supermarket, killing 
10 people. And the Buffalo Bills, I understand, as, as, as did so many others in the community, yourself included and others who were looking to make sure to figure out a way not only to stop the violence, but also to ensure that this could never happen again and to have accountability and to acknowledge the lives that were lost. And we're seeing images. I mean, I had the Buffalo Bills. They visited the neighborhood. They served meals. They delivered groceries. They even prayed with residents of the neighborhoods that were most impacted. Um, Talk to me about the lasting impact of what happened at that supermarket and, and how you are trying to ensure that the people of Buffalo continue to feel as though they are seen, they are heard, and they are safe. Well, there was a great deal of fear. There were people in pain. Uh, people were angry. Uh, in true uh, Buffalo fashion, uh, the community rallied uh, together, uh, picked each other up, embraced uh, the families of the victims of that horrific shooting. Uh, so many people in the city, in the region, uh, came to Jefferson Avenue, where the tops was located, to try to reach out uh, to the members of the community that had been so deeply affected by that shooting. Uh, so uh, the entire uh, Buffalo Bills organization uh, came to Jefferson Avenue, as you said, Laura, and uh, they uh, hugged members of the community. They gave T-shirts out uh, that said, choose love. Uh, they really embraced the community. Mayor, I'm so glad to hear that. And it sounds like Buffalo more than lives up to that particular moniker of the city of good neighbors. I guess the nation knows who they'll be rooting for just based on what has happened in terms of Buffalo and the reaction and the support. So no wonder my colleague and friend Wolf Blitzer speaks so highly of his hometown. Nice speaking to you tonight, Mayor. Nice speaking with you too, Laura. Thank you. And a federal judge dismissing a lawsuit from a former Florida state prosecutor who was removed by Governor Ron DeSantis when he refused to go after those who were seeking abortions. That judge says DeSantis was in the wrong. So why wasn't the prosecutor reinstated? We'll explain next. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis abruptly removed a twice-elected Democratic prosecutor just last year. Why? Because he refused to go after people who seek and provide abortions or provide gender-affirming care to transgender people. Andrew Warren sued DeSantis, but now a federal judge has dismissed that lawsuit, saying his, his action of the governor did violate the First Amendment and Florida's Constitution, but as a federal judge, he couldn't rule against a state official based only on the violation of state law. And in the wake of that ruling today, Andrew Warren joins me now. Andrew, thank you for coming. I know we talked when this first actually happened, and so I've been curiously following this particular suit. And the federal judge did take Governor DeSantis to task for his handling of your suspension, but he ultimately upheld it. Tell me why you think that is, and what's your reaction? Well, thanks so much for having me back, Laura. I mean, as you said, the judge took the governor to task. His findings were crystal clear. 
the governor violated federal law and he violated state law in suspending me. He said that the suspension had no legal basis and that I was basically being suspended as a political hit job. Now, the judge did not reinstate us as we've asked, but what's interesting here is that he agreed with us on the facts. He agreed with us on the law, but he's saying that as a federal judge, he doesn't have the remedy to reinstate me to office. And what's really interesting is that the judge called on the governor to reinstate me. Now, the governor has talked a lot about how he believes in the rule of law. Let's see what kind of man he actually is. Is he someone that means what he says when he actually, does he actually believe in the rule of law? Or is he a coward that's just gonna hide behind this and not do the right thing? Let me tell you what his reaction has been. He responded through a spokesperson, spokeswoman today saying today, The court upheld the governor's decision to suspend Andrew Warren from office for neglect of duty and incompetence. But we know that's not actually what the judge said, um, Andrew. The, The opinion does not talk about incompetence. In fact, it says there was not a hint of misconduct by you and that, quote, the assertion that Mr. Warren neglected his duty or was incompetent is incorrect. Now, on the one hand, I suppose you feel vindicated by the judge's statement of that. On the other hand, there is still the impression that's being conveyed that somehow this is not based on politics and, in fact, about your job performance. Because of that, do you have an intention to appeal? Is there a mechanism you will pursue to try to get reinstated in some way? What can be done now? Sure. Well, there are a lot of things to unpack in there. I mean, first of all, the fact that the governor's spokesperson came out and said something that is clearly contrary to what the order says, uh, it just shows, I mean, they live in this alternate reality. It's an Orwellian world where the judge says there's absolutely no misconduct. Andrew hasn't done anything wrong. And they say, see exactly what we said. He did something wrong. I mean, it just shows they will say anything to promote their own radical agenda. In terms of next steps, we're really still evaluating that at this point. But this was never a fight just about me and my job. This was always a battle for democracy, for free speech, for the integrity of our elections, to hold the governor accountable and to have the truth come out. And that's exactly what happened here. I mean, people have seen the truth that the governor suspended me, not in the pursuit of justice, but in the pursuit of politics. And he did so in violation of both the US and the Florida constitutions. And you were an elected official, just so people understand that. Normally you're talking about, you weren't a political appointee, you weren't somebody, you were an elected official, as you mentioned the word democracy. But there is a, a role that the Florida Senate could play, right? I mean, it could go before the Florida Senate, which is responsible for removing office holders um, who are suspended by the governor. But as you know, Republicans have a supermajority in the Florida Senate. And so I'm wondering if you have any hope that the legislative branch might be able to assist in, I know you say it's not just about you personally and the reinstatement, but we look to the legislature for reinstatement. Well, that's one, that's certainly one uh, possible avenue. I mean, again, the judge made clear that there was no misconduct by me. I didn't do anything wrong except do exactly what I said I was going to do. I mean, look, at the end of the day, this was about me standing up for issues that I believe in. This was me being transparent to the voters who elected me. These are things that any prosecutor should do. These are things that any elected official should do. And the governor disregarded that, broke the law, both federal and state law. And so the question is, where do we go next to get the remedy that we deserve to make sure 
that not only am I reinstated to office, but that this can't happen to anyone ever again in the state of Florida. And part of the reason I suppose he would, and we talked about in the past, that he was citing as your suspension in part was that you'd signed a letter that had pledged, along with other officials, that had pledged that you would not seek to prosecute anyone who sought, provided, or supported an abortion. I wonder, given all that's taken place right now, do you have any regrets for making that position either known or for signing that letter? No, I have no regrets whatsoever. I mean, I believe that uh, not only do I have a First Amendment right to speak out about issues of public importance, but as an elected official, I have a duty to the constituents in my county to tell them who I am as a prosecutor. And they know who I am. They know what I'm going to do. And so I stood up for what I believe in. I stood up for what's right. The judge vindicated us on the facts and the law today. And we accomplished what we set out to do almost all the way. I mean, again, this was about making sure that the governor is held accountable, that people see this for what it was, a political stunt. The judge made clear that's what it was. I'd love to be reinstated. We just have to figure out the next best step to get there. Andrew Warren, thank you for your time. Nice speaking with you again. Thank you. Have a good night. Here with me now, Margaret Tollib, Director of the Democracy, Journalism, and Citizenship Institute at Syracuse University. Also seen in legal analyst Elliot Williams is back with us now. He's also a former federal prosecutor. Elliot, let me begin with you here. Do you agree with the judge's opinion about the First Amendment having been um, violated here? But I wonder about the larger issue. A prosecutor that says, listen, I'm, I'm not going to be prosecuting or seeking prosecution of people who follow or seek um, safe harbor under a particular law or are seeking to get an abortion. Some would talk about discretion that all prosecutors yep. have, but there is a lot of criticism that's wielded against prosecutors who have been vocal about what they don't intend to do. Sure, look, you know, and I feel like, Laura, this is the second time I'm on tonight, and I feel like this is my night for talking about former colleagues of mine who are now more successful than I am, because Andrew and I <laughs> went to law school together. But look, let's be clear, there is nothing new about prosecutors and law enforcement agencies setting priorities for how they're going to carry out their jobs. Look, Laura, you know, I worked at ICE, Immigration Enforcement, for five years, and we would get blistering criticism that you're deciding not to prosecute or arrest people, which was just a lie and not true for the entire time I was there. And it's the same thing he's running into there. Now, Andrew's got a bit of a problem in that, number one, Florida law empowers the governor with a tremendous amount of, of juice that other governors don't have. And he also is running into sort of the buzzsaw of a governor who's, who appears to have national ambitions beyond, uh, beyond the state here. But look, this idea that prosecutors can say, I'm not going to prosecute a certain thing is nothing new. Think about a guy with a joint in his pocket. Literally, there are very few prosecutors' offices that actually would take the resources and time to do that and would spend their resources on going after the guys with the bricks of crack cocaine or the traffickers and so on. That's discretion. That's how law enforcement works. And it's silly what the, what the governor has done here. But look, as Andrew touched on, it's all politics. And yet, and, and, and to underscore that point, during the pandemic, there were a whole host of prosecutors who were setting their... Uh, their um, priorities and saying what they weren't going to go and pursue with limited police and law enforcement. And it became a conversation around so-called progressive prosecutors. And there was some demonization as a result. Let me ask you, though, Margaret, this this was out in the public's eye yep. before the election. I mean, if politics was truly his motivation, as the judge seems to say, and of course, the, um, the former prosecutor is saying as well, 
it, there was no repercussion. He wasn't penalized for it with the voters. He won handily. Uh, very handily. And it has propelled him into that kind of uh, front runner rival to Trump status of the very early 2024 race. Yeah. Uh, in terms of the national political stage, Ron DeSantis is playing for the base right now. If he were to emerge as a nominee, a GOP nominee for national office, he would have a different set of calculations. He would need to appeal to some degree of the center as well as motivate the base. These culture wars have not always proved legal successes. In case a couple couple of Florida newspapers have assessed millions of dollars in legal costs to losing some of these culture wars cases, not this one, uh, but politically have been very successful for Ron DeSantis in his home state. And when you look at Florida voter registration patterns, you see Democrats losing a lot of ground over the last few election cycles in terms of newly registered voters, losing ground to the middle while Republicans are holding steady. So he is seeing a political climate that has been uh, rewarding him so far in Florida. I think the challenge for DeSantis is going to be he has really modeled, tried to model himself as a champion of free speech rights in part of his whole the anti-woke stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, in, but in some cases, he is not championing First Amendment rights or rights of expression. He is uh, using his powers as allowed under the law to quash those rights. And I think that is, again, on a national stage, at some point, something he's going to have to reckon with. But right now, he's yeah, I, working for it. When him. you said those words, in his state and in Florida, that becomes top of mind for so many people as we're thinking about the national stage and how this translates yeah. in other places. Um, look at issues of abortion. You know, this is the weekend, what was usually the 50th anniversary to commemorate Roe v. Wade being in existence, now to be the first commemoration since the Dobbs decision. This is, I wonder how this translates, given the patchwork of laws that are already out there from trigger laws and beyond regarding abortion. Does this translate in terms of a blueprint for other prosecutors? Uh, I mean, it very well might, you know, um, and it just it's going to depend on every state's laws and sort of number one, um, how states craft their abortion laws. But two, you know, what is the governor or the the voters of the state? What capacity do they have to recall people and so on? What's really fascinating about this whole story is that we live in this country where we elect prosecutors. Uh, I think 94, 93 percent of the prosecutors in America are elected. But then when they sort of behave in a manner in line with the voters that put them there, uh, they sort of run into trouble. Now, you see it here with Andrew and the governor. You see it with uh, you know prosecutors all over the country. And it's just this odd scenario where we ask these folks to run for office, but then ask them to sort of either behave in an apolitical way or just behave uh, in a manner that the opposing party would uh, would sort of want to work with. It, it just doesn't point. really make sense. It doesn't. I mean, the idea of, you know, um, even when culture wars more broadly, yeah. much of culture wars are based in based little in fact. It's much yeah. more on the hyperbole, on the peak, trying to, you know, push and pour salt into wounds that maybe are, you know, hypoth- hypothetical. Well, who decides what history is? Right. The the victors of history decide what history is, or the popular will decides what history is. And I see, although this does impact a prosecutor and the administration of justice. From DeSantis's perspective, this is much more about him using the levers to navigate these culture wars. And don't forget, this is happening, as we've been hearing and talking about earlier tonight, around the same time as this decision about uh, the state of Florida's decision about this AP course and how to teach uh, black history in schools. And, and this is really all about who gets to decide um, 
what the truths are. You know what's fascinating about it? What does the word woke mean, right? And I bet a lot of people can't really define it. And now it might be one of those things like obscenity. I can't define it, but I know it when I see it. But like literally, that's the, the legal definition of obscenity from the Supreme Court. But what does woke even mean? All it is is something that if, as a governor, you say it, it triggers people, they hear it, and they know we don't like that. And we don't like what this prosecutor well, did because like it's it. woke. It, people who, <laughs> the people uh, you know, who you're targeting. targeting. Yeah. Right, right. It's, it's a bit of a dog whistle in a sense, or maybe a vuvuzela or something, but people hear it and it speaks to many folks. And they capitalize, and there are ways in which to maneuver it in the political process. Thank you both. Stick around. We've got news tonight on a story we first brought you this very week. A judge in Illinois is granting a temporary restraining order, barring the enforcement of a new Illinois gun law. The law caps the sale of high-capacity magazines, bans switches that allow semi-automatic firearms to fire rounds automatically, and, quote, extends the ability of courts to prevent dangerous individuals from possessing a gun through firearm restraining orders. The lawsuit argued that the ban violated the Illinois state constitution. Governor J.B. Pritzker now saying in a statement, quote, the Protect Illinois Communities Act takes weapons of war and mass destruction off the street while allowing law-abiding gun owners to retain their collections. I look forward to the next steps in this case and receiving the decision this case merits. There's also a proposal in San Francisco to pay reparations of $5 million to each eligible black resident. And predictably, it has sparked controversy. We've got an in-depth conversation about that next. million. That's the lump sum payment that a San Francisco advisory committee on African-American reparations is proposing for each eligible black resident. They say the proposal is meant to address institutional harms on black residents and will be considered by the San Francisco Board of Supervisors. But it's already getting backlash from some on the right and those who argue there's a better way to handle reparations. I want to bring in Cheryl Davis, executive director of the Human Rights Commission. She will present this proposal to the Board of Supervisors. Also, San Francisco Republican Party Chairman John Dennis. Good to see you both here this evening. Thank you for joining. I'm very interested in this topic and, and your, both of your positions. Let me begin with you, Cheryl, here, because I, I'm interested in how the committee actually got to this recommendation and the number in particular. Yes, thank you for having me. I would say that the process with the committee has been over a year in the making. It has been informed both by a community process, it's community informed, community led. I think there are several factors that came into play. One is first and foremost, um, black folks in San Francisco who were displaced, whether through eminent domain or through um, gentrification who were removed from their homes. Some people got nothing from their homes and some people got homes that are now worth millions of dollars. So the lump sum is just a small fraction. It's not meant to um, address all of the harm, but it's a starting point that they have um, talked about, that they have been committed to, and that we've heard from community members, a lot of whom feel like that's not enough. So that process is informed by cost of living, by 
home ownership, by a lot of different things uh, over the last year that they've looked into. And that number in particular, as you can imagine, people have reacted to it. They've seen a little sticker shock. You're smiling because you probably have heard it yourself and thinking, did I read this right? Was it $5 million lump sum or was it for each person? This has been a topic of of concern for people and a question. And I want to turn to you, John, on this because you say that this is a serious issue, reparations broadly, but that the number and the way this is gone about is being handled in an unserious way. Can you explain a little bit about why you feel that way? Well, sure. I mean, if you look at the people who are on the commission, I, I didn't look into everyone's background. It was there were a number of people. Um, they all seem to come from a particular political persuasion. I noticed that there were no lawyers on the uh, on the committee, which might have ad- added a sober, sobering note. Um, you know, I think everyone wants to make sure that if the government uh, commits infractions or there are grievances against the government, that they get addressed. Uh, they, they get addressed properly. But it seems like the, the, the effort of the committee was a foregone conclusion. It was just a question of which number they, to which they would arrive. And, there was, and, and it's interesting also in the report that there is no formula provided as to how they got to the $5 million. And I'd like to note as well that it's not just $5 million. There's also a provision in there, or a suggestion in the proposal, that says that every, uh, every black uh, African-American in San Francisco uh, who is eligible would get $97,000 a year for 250 years. Um, I, I, I don't know how that, that, that became about or what, who suggested that, but that just seems odd. And the total price tag, the city of San Francisco's budget is about $14 billion, and it's a big spending city. We're talking about $50 billion is the total cost of this package. I want you to address that, Cheryl, because do you believe that it was? Did you, end, did you, did you approach this and the commission, obviously, whose job it was to look at this? Um, as a foregone conclusion, when you were just looking at the number, it seems to me you just described a number of factors that went into figuring out how to get to this result in the end. What's your reaction? I think there are a couple of things to um, to point out. First and foremost, that the committee itself is meant to be made up of community members with lived experience that have been disproportionately impacted. Um, the idea notion that the money would come from only the city and county of San Francisco is not the assumption of the committee. I think that this idea of like where the money would come from is also still in conversation. There's also an ordinance in San Francisco, the um, Slavery Disclosure Ordinance, which was created in 2006, which was focused on understanding the institutions that gained money off of um, the slave trade and that they are supposed to disclose and then they have the ability to contribute to a fund that was set up to support uh, things like this. Additionally, the $97,000 a year is not for all eligible in terms of every black person in San Francisco. It is focused on folks from low income. It is a very specific carve out. But I would say that overall, it's a package that folks were thinking about, like, how do we talk about all the different approaches, the systems piece, the programmatic pieces, $5 million is a lump sum. It's not in the budget yet. It's not meant to totally be taken on by the city. And it still has to go through the next draft. It still has to be presented to the Board of Supervisors. The mayor's not included in this in her budget. It hasn't been vetted by the board. It hasn't gone to the city attorney who would inform the, the city and county of what their um, what their opportunities are, what they can do. So it, there's a lot more to go before we do this. This is community members saying what they think they th- should happen based on the research that's been done. And the document is 80 pages. 
It is important that you acknowledge the idea of, I mean, and just and inform for all of us who is on the committee and the purpose. I just, I just want to clarify one point. So is the money intended as um, possibly an option to come from the private sector, you're saying, of those who may have benefited historically from the slave trade? I mean, you're in a place like um, you know, Northern California. People automatically think about Silicon Valley. They think about the technology industry, um, obviously far more novel than those that would have been thriving um, in 16 and 19 and beyond. Is that where it would be coming from, the private sector? I think that's part of the the conversation that the committee wants to continue having. I think that's part of what the Board of Supervisors would have to do. But the Slavery Disclosure Ordinance has Wells Fargo saying that they benefited. That was their affidavit that they submitted. Bank of America saying that they made money off of the slave trade. So those are things that since 2006, the city and county is trying to look at and understand what financial institutions, what insurance companies, who are the folks that have been able to benefit and prosper off of this. And perhaps that's something the committee could look at. John, it sounds like this is very much a work in progress and a conversation in the making that it relies on a number of stakeholders. Does that change your perception of where things stand right now? No, I'm afraid not, because the, the, the report is terribly muddled. It largely focuses on redlining uh, in, in San Francisco, which was uh, San Francisco city policy, um, which is one issue. But for some reason, one of the potential qualifications is if someone was, was a descendant of slaves. Well, California entered the union in 1850 as a free state. So what would slavery have to do with it? Another uh, qualification, potential qualification for eligibility is that someone would be have to uh, uh, suffered from the, the quote unquote failed war on drugs, which was federal policy. So I'm wondering why those are being brought in as eligibility uh, prospects. I also have to say that um, if you're going to start you know, talking about redlining, what do we do for the Chinese community and the Asian communities who were impacted by policies in San Francisco? The Chinese community was forbidden to live in San Francisco many years. And last year, the, the Board of Supervisors just simply issued an apology to them in February of 2022. So I, I think there are there are lots of aggrieved people. We should address those, those issues. But this, I'm, ter- I'm terribly sorry to say, is just not a serious uh, approach to this prospect. And despite that, I think it actually could pass. If this goes in front of the Board of Supervisors, I suspect that they have the votes. Cheryl, can you address that idea? I mean, it, it sounds like John is saying, at least in part, and obviously you can speak for yourself, but the, it sounds in part the idea that if multiple groups are have grievance, then perhaps we focus on the collective. But it also sounds like if $5 million is too much or this budget is insurmountable, then it would seem as though none would benefit. And there are, as you well know, historically, there have been types of reparations or provisions for certain groups in America who have suffered at the hands of the federal government and state and localities as well. What is your reaction to the idea of the possibility that this could pass, given that there's not yet the budgetary numbers in place to implement it? There are, there are a few things that come to mind for me. First and foremost, just having the conversation and having it pass, I think, is monumental, um, especially for a place like San Francisco or California, to be able to own and recognize California was not a slave state, 
but they did have rules to return slaves, right? And so to have these conversations, to drill down, to go a little bit deeper, I think the other piece is that as we've talked about other aggrieved groups, we understand that we still are bound by Prop 209, which doesn't, which precludes us from having these conversations around race. And in San Francisco, over 10,000 residents were displaced in San Francisco because of redevelopment. And over 80% of those folks were black. So if we were to focus on that, we wouldn't exclude other groups. We would be able to say, though, that we know that it was disproportionately black. So as we've had these conversations, we have allies that are in other communities, other cultural groups that are saying, like, let's, if we make this happen, it can helpfully, hopefully inform what we do for other groups as well. So it's not necessarily um, as limited and narrow as folks may think. It actually is very informative. And I think the board passing it, they would then also work on how to cover the cost of this. No one is suggesting that the city go bankrupt to do this. And no one is saying that the burden is solely on the city and county of San Francisco. I mean, John, in the bureaucracy, it wouldn't be the first time, right, that you had a acknowledgement and recognition of a particular policy position and then figured out the rest later. How often do we hear about that on Capitol Hill? But what's your reaction? Well, I just think that, again, I feel like the process is, was just very poorly done. Frankly, this should be, I think, adjudicated in the laws. I'm not a lawyer, but that seems to be the appropriate venue for this kind of thing. And I want to say this. This is sort of a problem, societal problem that, that we're facing right now. It feels like in many circumstances that these sorts of policies, not just this one, but other ones, are sort of jammed down on a very political and tribal level. And uh, when when they when things like this are not done properly, it it uh, it creates acrimony and a bitterness that just lingers and it doesn't resolve anything. So I would suggest that if this is if people want to take a serious stab at this, that they should uh, you know take a different tact, take a look at what what the actual issues are, what the economic uh, impact was, and the opportunity cost, and then address it from that manner in a fair way. This is this I'm afraid is just not that not that approach. Well, I'm glad to have both of you on to be able to converse about this important issue and to have learned, Cheryl, more about the process that seemed to consider in a very holistic way the different avenues you were talking about. But we recognize it was not the end of the conversation. Sounds like it was intended to spark one and a meaningful one and a continuation of many that are happening around this country. And we're going to continue it here. Thank you so much for both of you. Thank you. We're going to be right back. Well, new tonight, the Rust movie is still on track for completion. That's when an attorney for the Rust movie productions is telling CNN. And actor Alec Baldwin will still star in the lead role. That after New Mexico's DA announced that she will charge the actor with involuntary manslaughter after the fatal shooting on set of cinematographer Helena Hutchins. The attorney also tells CNN the film will include on-set safety supervisors, and union crew members, and will bar any use of working weapons or any ammunition. Alec Baldwin was seen out today in New York, but refusing to answer questions. I want to bring in someone who has intimate knowledge of the DA's decision. His name is Brian Carpenter, and he is an armorer and trainer and serves in an expert advisory role in the Rust investigation. Brian, thank you for being here this evening. Um, I must say, some are really shocked to find that it will still go on. The show must go on, apparently, is the phrase to use here. But there are new safety precautions, obviously, in light of what has happened. 
and the tragedy that is just unthinkable for the loved ones and family of Ms. Hutchins. You were actually brought in on this back in, I think, November. And how have you helped in the investigation and, and what did you advise the DA? Well, the first thing was trying to get everyone to understand, you know, how an active set works, um, you know, the dynamics, uh, how the unions and non-unions, uh, the unions and then non-union shows operate, uh, the specific roles uh, of each individual member on the cast and our crew, and uh, very specifically the role of an armorer, an actor, a producer, prop master, first AD on a set. And how did you advise the DA in terms of, did, did, was there questions asked to you about um, who you think was responsible or who ought to have been responsible to have a duty of care to what, what ammunition was present on the set or how it was inserted into a gun? Yes, that was uh, drilled down on very, very specifically throughout the entire investigation. And obviously the investigation is continuing on. They did and continue to do an excellent job. Uh, as I said previously, a very unbiased, very thorough investigation starting from the beginning, working their way through interviews, all of the evidence that was collected and it was a vast amount of it. Um, but yes, uh, as we started talking about different roles and responsibilities, uh, specifically on a movie set, when you're handling a weapon, it is protocol in place. And like you said previously, as you were opening, the idea that they said they were going to continue on and then place protocol in place, safety guidelines, well, those safety guidelines and protocol are already there. And they're already thoroughly uh, documented and followed on almost all uh, shows, especially shows that, you know, want to make sure that, you know, the safety and care of the casting crew is, is uh, paramount. Is it your impression that the protocols, um, obviously we know what has happened, but is your impression from the review that there is a singular or some group of people in particular who did not follow the protocol, who ought to be held responsible if it were on a different set? Uh, unfortunately, yes. And I have empathy for everyone. Um, you know, I looked at this from a standpoint of my experiences on set. And I know the difficulties that, you know, one faces on a crew me- as a crew member, uh, especially in modern filmmaking. Uh, it's been a trend over the last, you know, it's, you know, I would say, especially over the last six or seven years, to push crew members, cast, crew, and the production itself to make the film faster and for less money, uh, because that equates to more money on the back end. You know, for you know certain persons that are that are involved in a studio, um, anybody in the waterfall of the film. So, having said that, when you start uh, cutting corners and trying to save money. Unfortunately, that money seems to always be saved in the wrong places, uh, such as stunts, special effects, firearms, etc. And that creates a dangerous situation. Now, directly to your point and your question, um, when you have a chain of custody with that weapon, if you want to use that term, and you have people handling the weapon that have a duty of responsibility when they're handling the weapon, and an armor who has a duty of responsibility to make sure that weapon is presented properly, is safe, is functional, um, is there at all times when it's being used, uh, then you start seeing a very evident um, uh, uh, group of people that either intentionally or intentionally disregarded or carelessly disregarded safety. Well, there's still a lot to want to learn. We've heard from the DA. Now it's time for 
what will take place now and the evidence that may be a part of the trial. Brian Carpenter, thank you for your expertise this evening. We'll be right thank back. Thank you very much. Anti-abortion activists holding their annual March for Life rally in Washington, D.C. today, their first gathering since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade just last year. Many of those who marched saying that while the reversal of Roe is obviously a major victory for their movement, they're still aiming to push legislation that restricts abortion at the state and federal levels. Just because Roe v. Wade was overturned, it's turned it back to the states. But this has always been more than a political issue. This is a moral issue. Abortion is about killing. It's a moral issue, not just a political issue. And that's why we're still here. We're still fighting. Well, nationwide, 13 states, the ones in rust color, ban abortion outright or severely restrict it. Some of those state bans the result of trigger laws that went into effect once Roe v. Wade was overturned. Now, the states in the dark tan color you see, they have gestational limits on the procedure. And in the green states, a little more than half the country, abortion remains legal. New York is one of those green states. And in New York City in particular, the mayor, Eric Adams, is expanding abortion services, rolling out a plan to begin providing free abortion pills at city-run sexual health clinics. Mayor Eric Adams hailing the program. No other city in the nation or in the world has a public health department that is providing medication abortion. We are the first. Well, back in August, Adams signed a package of six bills known as the New York City or the NYC Abortion Rights Act, which paved the way to make medication abortions free at city departments of health clinics. Remembering folk rock icon David Crosby, his life and legacy of David Crosby, next. The music world is mourning David Crosby, the legendary singer and songwriter, dead at the age of 81. Tonight, CNN's Anderson Cooper spoke with James Taylor about Crosby's legacy. He, you know, he he was an artist and uh, and, and it just burned bright always. You know, it just his energy shone through. It was. It wasn't so much that he achieved it; he just couldn't be denied. You know. CNA's CNN's Randy Kay has more on the life of David Crosby. He helped shape the sound of 1960s folk rock as a founding member of the Birds. But David Crosby will always be best known as a founding member of Crosby, Stills and Nash. The wildly popular group was made up of Crosby, Stephen Stills, and Graham Nash. Their sound distinctive for its melody and harmonies. I am yours, you are mine, you are what you are. In the midst of the late 60s Laurel Canyon scene in California, their debut album went multi-platinum. It's an absolute joy. It's what I was born to do. I love it more than anything except my family. Uh, it's the most fun you can have. Uh, and, and yes, I'm including sex. Uh, it's, it's really, really a joy. You're communicating to people. You're, you're making them feel something. 
1969, Neil Young joined the group, and together they emerged as a powerful cultural influence. A clash of egos between Young and Crosby got in the way, though. I was not easy. Big ego, no brains. The original trio disbanded during the 1970s, but some members would regroup over the years, including coming back together to release the classic Southern Cross. In 1989, they played the Berlin Wall. And the wall will come tumbling down. We had this song called Chippin' Away that just fit it. We said, hey, we're going to go there and sing that song. And it wasn't really a logical thing. It was just something we wanted to do, and we did it. Over the years, Crosby struggled with addiction. In 1982, after his arrest in Texas on drug and weapons charges, he would spend five months in prison. I had to, you know, finish up being a, a completely wasted you know, addict and then spent a year in prison to get straight. And uh, then once I did that, I jumped back in wholeheartedly. Cocaine and alcohol abuse took its toll, causing Crosby to have liver transplant surgery in 1994. He wrote about his addictions in an autobiography called Long Time Gone. Still, Crosby continued to tour after that. In June 2021, Crosby spoke with Howard Stern and offered his philosophy on life. You know, I am at the end of my life, Howard, and it, it's a very strange thing. And here's what I've come to about it. It's not how much time you got, because we really don't know. Uh, I, I could have two weeks, I could have 10 years. It's what you do with the time that you do have. And so I'm trying to really spend it well. Whatever each day that I get, I'm very grateful for, and I try to... Do it making music, because I think the world needs music. David Crosby was 81. Randy Kay, thank you so much. And thank you all for watching. Our coverage continues. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.